651 Sports, in partnership with the Corinne Football Association, brings you a special 12-part podcast series, I Play For You. Hear the stories of the men and women from the Corinne Football Association, each having their own unique story to tell. We invite you for this off-the-field interview with these athletes and Mike Resendez of 651 Sports. Back to I Play For You, a special 12-part podcast series that is uh, designed from a partnership from 651 Sports and the Corinne Football Association. We are starting the second half of our 12-part series. We've already completed six episodes. We are now entering episode number seven and part one. My guest today is Lele Zahn. Lele, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I am great. Great. All right, so we're going to talk about, uh, just like in the other episodes, uh, the first part here will be about um, you and your family um, and your life um, outside of the United States and then coming to the United States. And then part two will be about soccer and uh, what that's meant uh, in your life. And uh, then we will uh, wrap up the interview after that. Does that sound good? Yeah. Sounds good. All right. If you could just start off and tell our listeners uh, just a, a brief bio of yourself. Oh, okay. Um, so just like with current journeys, I would say there are multiple experiences. Not every experience is the same. And I would say that um, I would consider the uh, immigration of um, the current people or like between the late 90s and like the early 2000s, I would consider that the first wave of the current immigration um, to the United States. And my family was included in one of like the first families who came to uh, specifically Minnesota to, you know, establish a community and so my family um so to begin with i was born in tom hin camp and um it's a refugee camp located west of thailand in Ratchaburi. and i was born um i was born in the refugee camp and then about a year later my family moved to bangkok um, and applied to the UNHCR to um, to be able to, uh, you know, move to the United States. And so my parents found jobs working there, and we lived a year in Bangkok. And then ultimately we moved to St. Paul in 2001 of February. And so, yeah. What do you remember about living in the refugee camps? So I was just, 
a baby. So I I was one of the few that really don't remember, um, you know, the experiences there because I was just a kid. Um, I definitely have like uh, some like memories of like Thailand, uh, of like Bangkok, but I would say that um, the refugee camp was like um, I never I never grew up there. But I did have an opportunity um, in the summer of 2015 to go visit my family back in the refugee camps. And um, that was a whole other experience because I never grew up there and I didn't really remember life there. So do you have do you currently have family still living in refugee camps in Thailand? Yeah. So um, I have a lot of family who still live in the refugee camps and I have family who's living um near the refugee camps in small towns outside of Tamhin and um some of them uh have family here also and some of them really um just like really like there's they still remain in the refugee camps because like it's, life there is kind of more simpler and um not every one of them really wants to come to the United States. And yeah, it's very different. So what was it uh, like for you to go back in 2015 then? Um, what did you experience and what were some of your, your takeaways from that? Um, it was definitely culture shock, which is, uh, which is kind of like um, weird because I'm Karen also, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, um, just like experience experiencing cultural shock from your own like um identity is odd because Korean people in the United States are not like Korean people in um the refugee camps and and it was just an eye-opening experience because I just like um really realized the privileges that I had and um really and really just like the basic everyday life needs of that they don't have, you know, and it life was just, there was simpler, but hard, harder. And, um, it was just a, a humbling experience. And it was just, um, it just made me more appreciative of everything that, um, I have here in the U S and, um, just, it's just it just makes you want to like sort of um, really help the families there and help you know establish good schools, good um, like job opportunities for the family there because it's hard. Now I know you're not old enough to remember what it was like in the refugee camps, but did your parents or uh, the family that's still there did they explain to you um, what has changed for the better uh, since your family has left? I I have not um I have not been updated so much okay. um since 2015 but I do know that um I don't know there was like news of like refugee camps shutting down and like closing and what's going to happen to the residents there and um you know the refugee crisis is still is still real we have a lot of displaced people and um really just like it's just them trying to like if they aren't able to come to the united states and they're not accepted 
to, you know, move to the U.S. Um, with just like everything going on with our political climate, a lot of the refugees do have to like apply for like Thai citizenships and stuff. Now, how has that been on the the Thai government side with accepting uh, refugees uh, since since your family left? I know you said you lived in in Bangkok. Um, I when I interviewed Chris, he had mentioned that they had lived in Bangkok for a little while, but it was a little tougher to get into right away. Uh, when your family got into or started living in Bangkok, would, was there a lot of hoops to jump through even to get that far? It's, yeah, I mean, the government is aware of the refugee camps um, on their land. Um, and there's still, like, like with the UNHCR, um, a lot, like the Thai prime minister uh, really... Um, is trying to protect the refugees and um, allow the refugees to live in um, their, co- their country, but um, it's still and like it's not just the Korean refugees. There's like different ethnic minorities who are like like the Rohingyas, um, and they're experiencing the same thing that we did. Sure. Um, so yeah. And there's a there's a ceasefire right now, right? Or there's some some peace um, with between yeah. the Korean and the Burmese government right now. Yeah. So um, I haven't really been updated with like really recent news, but I have heard that there's a ceasefire. There's like a sort of like a peace treaty uh, between um, the K and U's uh, military unit and. Burmese um, government to like stop the fighting for a while, but mm-hmm. I don't know what like I don't know what the you know what how it's gonna, how long it'll last. Sure. So, so tell me about what do you remember about living in Bangkok? I mean, what, did you attend school there? Um, where did no did, no okay no I was actually really I was too young. You were still I was too, too young, young to attend. Okay. All right. Yeah, because when I came to the United States, I was just three years old. Just three, okay. So, so your yeah. experiences coming over was a lot different than some of the other people I've interviewed then. Um, yeah, very different. They were a little older um, and can remember certain things. Um, so tell me about uh, what what's your earliest uh, memory of being in the United States? Ooh, so we arrived, so my family arrived in the United States in like mid to end of winter and so that was pretty like exciting for my family we've never seen snow and um it was hard because uh my parents were what 24 25 year olds raising two children um in a new country not knowing the language and um not uh you know knowing the cultural like the the culture here, not knowing people, um, it was it was hard. But we had support from First Baptist Church of St. Paul, and they we act. My family actually lived in the basement of that church, and they provided a lot of support. and um, And we, the earlier families, sort of also established relationships with like the Vietnamese social services. Catholic charities to, you know, like a form, um, a current organization to support current refugees. And 
Um, but it was still tough. Um, I remember my mom telling me her first job was at a Thai restaurant, um, working in the back of the restaurant, like five, five dollars an hour. And, um, no one taking care of her kids. You know, we often had to like, um, stay at home alone and, um, and just like not open the door to strangers and um it was tough she had to like commute to work in like using the bus um really not knowing how to read the language also and so it was just tough on my parents and my dad worked at a packaging like a, a packaging company for um the airport so he was packaging food um for delta or like airport airlines and stuff all right, so learning English, did that come easier for you since you were so young uh, coming into the United States? Yeah, it's, it was fairly easy because uh, we grew up watching, uh, you know, PBS, all the all the shows on there, and um, just going to, just being able to go to, like, American schools. I think English was, like, really pretty simple to learn. What was one of your favorite shows on, on PBS? Arthur. <laughs> was one of my favorite shows. Um, but when I was like younger, younger, when I didn't really go to school, I remember watching like Caillou, Clifford the Big Red Dog. And then on Saturdays, they had more, like more, we didn't have cable TV. Sure. So um, Saturdays were more special because they had better cartoons. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And so we would wake up early on Saturdays to just watch like, like Yu-Gi-Oh, um, like the fancier cartoons. Sure. That, nice. Did you enjoy Caillou? I remember watching that with my kids and that was not one of my favorite cartoons on that channel. <laughs> yeah. When I was younger, that was one of my favorites. And then we just, I just, I just remembered a lot of like Zibumafu, um, and yeah, just learned a lot from all the PBS shows. Yeah, I met the the Krat Brothers once at the at the Minnesota Zoo. That was that was kind of funny. It was right at the height of when Zabumafu's uh, uh, when they first started, and everyone they were, they were so popular. It was a it was like a line at the zoo, like out the door of the trail. It was pretty crazy. At the Como Zoo. Uh, I was at the Minnesota Zoo. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. that that Minnesota oh. Trail, that that whole ramp was full of people just waiting in line to get their picture taken with them. Nice. So, uh, the Baptist Church that you came to, that was it was that the church that was sponsoring um, all the Korean families that were coming to the United yeah. States. So, the First Baptist Church was one of the first uh, Korean churches to sponsor um, refugee families, and there's still a lot of although there's like a so many churches now, so many current churches now. Um, it's still one of the biggest churches um, with like different um, congregations we have. And they just like provide, right now, since it's like bigger, we have more resources for current refugees. Um, we can, They have provided like homes um they provided like basic needs um just for refugee families and for us we were able to live 
um, in the basement of the church for like a few months before we were uh, we were we were um, found housing. So, how did uh, finding housing work? Was that uh, did they provide resources for your parents to to buy a house, or did they help with with rental uh, assistance? How how did that part of uh, things work here? So, um, a lot of current uh, re or refugees really tend to live in apartment complexes, and so my family was um, chosen to live in an apartment complex in the Rice Street community of St. Paul. Okay. And um, I just think that it just grew because we had, you know, we had Korean people, we had early Korean people, families living in certain Korean um, neighborhoods or like where the apartment complexes were. And as a result, um, a lot of the, you know, social services and the churches really helped um, the current people, like, they stuck us in, basi they basically stuck us in, like, current uh, apartment complexes. So they would, like, try to help us find uh, apartments near each other. Right, to keep that sense of community? Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that's actually a pretty good idea. Um, what um, what were some of the, the struggles that you're your parents had other, you know, they, other than speaking English, um, how, how was it finding uh, jobs when they first came over? Um, they definitely have to work long hours. And a lot of the time, like when, when we started to grow up to be like, what, like four, like seven to 10 years old, um, we were pretty, my brother and I were pretty independent um, my mom really had an evolution. I, I've seen her evolution, like, in her work. And um, my parents aren't together now, but um, I've seen the evolution of my mom's work. So she began with the Thai kitchen. She um, she started working long hours. She had to work long hours, 5 a.m. to, like, closing. And then... Um, after that, she found work um, at a nursing home. So, you know, that was that was more hours, too. And then later, she started working at um, a towel packaging company called GK Services. And a lot of Karen families, a lot of Karen mothers actually work there now, too. And um, she was one of the first, the first people working there. And after that, you know, there's just like there was just this need for like um, help to our community. There's this need for interpreters. There's need for um, Korean translators, you know, to help. Because now we're we're looking at like the second wave of Korean refugees right. who are immigrating here from like 2006 to 2013 and stuff. That would I would consider that like the second wave, right? And so after that, a lot of the early Korean families really um, started establishing the orgs and they, they were more of like, um, you know, like they were more of leadership position where they were helping their people back. And so my mom um, began her work as an interpreter. And so she interprets, she helps Korean refugees now with um, interpreting for their medical appointments and for 
and for um, their like citizenships and yeah. Now, when I speak with uh, like uh, current people, like you said, from the first wave, um, and now um, with refugees coming from the second wave, as you put it, there seems to be a lot of people helping out um, as far as interpreting or um, you know just with basic needs, just anything that that they probably struggled with when they first came over to help the next uh, wave come through. Uh, what is special about the Korean people too that uh, keeps that that sense of community? Because that's not always something that you see here in the United States, unfortunately. But there are some cultures that that's really like the basis of how that culture survives. So, what is it about the Korean culture that keeps that uh, sense of community alive? I think there are multiple factors that keep us together, and um, I think it's very important to understand that. Um, I feel like, you know, Eastern cultures, or you know, like I'm just gonna speak for the Korean people. I feel like our culture is more collective, and we tend to. Um, and the American culture, I would say, is more individualistic. We like to be independent. We like to, you know, like move out of the home and be on our own in American culture. But with Korean. But in the Korean community, I would say we work as a collective. And I think the basis of that is um, has some things to do with like religion and faith. Um, I feel like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the leaders in our community right now are also faith-based. And um, a lot of their values sort of, sort of like come from Christian values. And so we want to help our neighbor. We want to, you know, help each other out. We're not going to like let you, we're not going to, when you're like at your lowest, we're, we're going to help you. We're going to find resources for you. And that's just what um, I feel like we've always, what I've always grown up with. And however much, like however much I want to be independent from my family or I want to do things on my own, um, really what what keeps the community, what like what keeps you alive is the collective work and um, that we do to help each other. And a lot of that um, is through like programming um, of like, you know, of like special holidays, special events in the Korean community. And a lot of the main, um, and this is going to get into soccer, but like really like a lot of the current celebrations bring us all together, I would say, in, in terms of like social, um, social gatherings, I would say that the such events such as current New Year's, Sweet December, um, which is really also a lot faith-based. Um, Korean witch tying ceremony, Korean Martyrs Day, a lot of that brings us together, and um, and all of this happens because we contributed work. We work as a collective to be able to make it happen, and and so I would say, yeah, and just like, and one of the, and then as a result, soccer is just like a big thing right it's like with so many people gathered in one spot 
Mm-hmm. Uh, sports has a tendency to to bring people even closer together, I believe, um, yep. especially if it's a sport that's kind of rooted in the in the culture as well. Yeah, and and then in the Korean community, not all of us are Christian. Some of us, um, a lot of us are also Buddhists, and so um, that still brings us together. You know, like we don't often see. Like you tend to hang out with people from like your church or your faith, and so that sports events really bring brings everyone together. Yeah, now, what are some of the other things uh, that your parents uh, kind of instilled into you um, from the Korean culture, um, just to to keep that alive here in the United States? I think um, my parents however much like they wanted me to like succeed in American schools and stuff. Um, they always, always like wanted me to not forget my people. And they always encouraged me to, you know, speak to my elders and like collect stories from my elders so that we, you know, as the next generation can really keep, these stories and um, our history alive. And recent, like about two years ago in 2018, my grandfather passed away. And um, that was a big loss to our family and the community. He was a prominent, his father was a prominent leader for the Korean people and he was a prominent leader for the Korean community here in the United States. And just like, just reflecting back on it, I would say my regrets was not spending enough time with him, you know, to like, to seek out the stories, to seek out all of his, you know, stories, his experiences in the, in the, um, his experiences working for the current military and stuff. And so I would say that was, that would be one of my biggest regrets because a lot of our history, um, will be lost if we do if we don't um seek out stories from our elders and so my parents really um instilled in me like to really um focus on my education but also within that process to like focus on helping your community too is there anyone that's uh trying to record any of the history as they talk to the elders to keep that alive in in written form or anything I'm pretty sure there are some, some, I'm like, I know, I know, I, it's just this thing that I saw online, but I know there's this French person, this French man who has, who's researching about the current people. And it's kind of sad to like, that it's not our own people. And so I'm very interested in like, you know, I'm very interested in like, like just Brit- like bringing out the history of the current people to the young people these days, because not a lot of current people or not a lot of young current people know their history. Sure. So that's something that I'm really very interested in, you know, showcasing to people my age, people of the younger ages, because they tend to like, um, they tend to dismiss uh, when their parents are talking about current history and just like, Oh, it's something that I'm not going to have to like, um, experience or something that uh, that don't matter, but it does matter, you know, because a lot of current children who are born in the United States really don't know how to speak Korean anymore, and 
I just fear that it might be like a loss of culture, a loss of language, and so, and a loss of Korean people, and so that's that's something that I'm worried about. So, yeah. Yeah. Now I know you and I spoke. Um, I guess it would be last or this past May uh, when you were a guest on the the radio show that I do. Um, yeah. But uh, you you speak Korean, um, and that's something your parents taught you when you were learning English. Um, when you came over here, were, were you able to speak English at home or was that uh, like some of the other interviews I've done where English was spoken at school and, and you spoke Korean or whatever native language at your house? I would say that's, I would say this is, a, this. I feel like this is, um, this question is like very, like I want to express this issue, you know, with like language. Um, I was raised to speak both languages, but um, my parents wanted me to excel in English so that I can succeed in American schools. However, as a result, um, you know, as working parents, they didn't really have time to really teach me how to read and write in Korean, you know. But I, I know how to speak it because I speak it with my family members and stuff. And I remember, like, just because I would say, in my case, my parents really didn't um, care for um, whether I spoke English or Korean. But um, as I grew older, I like, I told my parents, hey, like, um, you know, we should, I should just speak to you guys in Korean at home and English outside, and um, because I, I felt sort of left out as I began to grow older, when, um, when my friends, when my friends who were like, who are, who grew up in the refugee camps and were able to, you know, read and write in Korean, I felt left out like, oh my gosh, like I don't, I'm Korean, but I don't know how to read or write Korean. And I just felt, um, like, ashamed of like not being able to do that and so right as and so right now um and these past few years I've been trying to like really teach myself Karen even though um I don't you know out of my busy schedule I'm teaching myself to read and write in Karen and it's like it's weird because you're Karen and you're like learning how to read and write in Karen and I think that's just, um, I don't know. It's just up to the family, I would say. Um, and not a lot of families are teaching their children to read and write in Quran. And I think that sucks because it's going to be such an important skill for these, um, like this next generation of leaders, you know, because not every Quran people will speak Quran. Oh, or, or not every Korean people will speak English, and you have different dialects and different languages spoken, also such as Burmese and Thai. And so, language is so important. And I'm just like, it's unfortunate for me that I can't read and write in Korean, but I'm I'm teaching myself that, and I'm seeking out help from like older family, like my aunts and uncles, to help me also. And so, yeah. Well, I think that uh, speaks a lot to you about seeing um, that there was a gap there and wanting to, to fill that gap. Yeah. 
So we're going to transition uh, from one language to the other, and that's the language of soccer. But we're going to do that in part two. So we're going to end uh, part one right here. Um, so Lele, thanks for joining us uh, for part one. And coming up in part two, we will talk about your soccer life. You're listening to I Play For You, a special 12-part series between 651 Sports and the Corinne Football Association. This special podcast series, I Play For You, was brought to you in partnership with 651 Sports and the Corinne Football Association. For more information about the Corinne Football Association, visit CorinneFA.com or for more information about 651 Sports, go to 651sports.com. This series was recorded at the WFNU Studios in the Frogtown neighborhood, St. Paul, Minnesota. for you a 12-part podcast series that was recorded at the studios of wfnulp in the heart of the frogtown neighborhood in saint paul the music wildflower by joe kim Carood, and the intro and outro was recorded by lou hughes if you'd like to support this podcast please visit the patreon page at patreon.com forward slash mike radio